welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. The text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 18. These are the very words of God. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for, the very, for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are, on the, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort, comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also uh, read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Eric, uh, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Can you pray with me? Gracious God, you have given us all we need for life and holiness in this book. We ask that your spirit would bless the preaching of your revealed word this morning. Cause our hearts to be transformed for Christ's glory and cause our local community to be reformed into the likeness of King Jesus as his kingdom goes forth within our midst. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, happy Reformation Sunday to you. So it's a pleasure to be up here um, for the last time. Uh, we started the book of Colossians in January of this year. Uh, this is my ninth um, sermon through it, and we are going to finish out the chapter, uh, finish out the book. Uh, and it's been an honor to, to do that with you all. Uh, before Alex Guinness 
became forever known as Obi-Wan Kenobi of Star Wars. He was Colonel Nicholson in the historical drama Bridge on the River Kwai. In this film adaptation of the book by the same name, Colonel Nicholson, a British prisoner of war, is forced to work in a labor camp building a railroad bridge for the Japanese. Nicholson is a man of high honor, high spirit, and high standards, and he expects nothing less from his own men. In the story, after an initial battle of wills between himself and the commanding officer of the POW camp, Colonel Saito, he is let out of solitary confinement. He finds, on his release, that his men in the camp are in disarray. They have been doing all they can to sabotage and slow down the construction of the bridge. Therefore, they've been doing shoddy work. And as a result, their, their own discipline has suffered into the same shoddy disrepair. Nicholson says that they resemble a rabble rather than a regiment. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes with no order, no discipline, and no joy. Over the course of the story, Colonel Nicholson inspires the troops to band together and to build a bridge for the Japanese that they couldn't even build themselves, to build a better bridge than they could even build themselves. He encourages his men to see that the war won't last forever and that when the British inevitably win, they will inherit the very bridge they are building. A bridge, he says, that will, quote, teach these barbarians a lesson in Western methods and efficiency that will put them to shame. Nicholson believes in the victory of the kingdom of the Brits and therefore understands that momentary setbacks, uh, momentary setbacks such as being a prisoner of war, doesn't change his or anyone's marching orders. He is still called, and they are, as an army, called to extend the glories of the British Empire unto the ends of the earth. So Colonel Nicholson is a microcosm of the true reality that is present in the book of Colossians. Paul writes with similar conviction and certainty also while in prison. He tells the Colossians of the victory of the gospel throughout all the world. He speaks of this gospel overthrowing thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, even while he himself is chained to a Roman guard. Paul, writing from prison, is writing about the victory that has come and is coming for all who labor in building Christ's kingdom. He tells the saints in Colossae to expect something, to expect the gospel to bear fruit in Colossae, just as it is bearing fruit in all the world. He is praying that these saints and all the saints who read his letter would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and would, as a result, walk in wisdom and with thanksgiving. He wants them to realize that the battle is already won, even if the physical chains haven't yet been broken. He wants us to work with zeal to build Christendom, even if our circumstances resemble those of a POW camp. This is because, Paul tells us, Christ has been set as ruler over all creation, 
in both heaven and, Paul is careful to say, on earth. Paul argues that Christ is preeminent. We remember that means he's over all things. That Christ is sufficient. He's all we need for salvation. And that the reality of his preeminence and his sufficiency changes everything. No longer must we be chained in the domain of darkness, held captive by Satan. But rather, we've been made alive in Christ and transferred into his kingdom by his resurrection from the dead. Our resurrection came about because we first died with Christ. And with him, the certificate of debt we owed God because of our sin, that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross of Christ and canceled forever. Even in what appeared to be a humiliating death of Christ on the cross, Paul tells us was rather the mystery of Christ revealed in which he, quote, disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them. Even though it looked like Christ was the one undergoing humiliation, it was the the, uh, principalities and powers that put him there that were being made put to shame. Because of Christ's victory, no longer are we held captive by our lusts, by our anger, our blasphemy, our deceptions, or our lack of gratitude. No longer must we vainly attempt to make ourselves acceptable to God through fasting, through aesthetic practices such as abstaining from certain food and drink. We now have victory over these sinful practices because we have died and our new life is hidden in Christ. In other words, the old is gone and now we can put on the new man, Christ himself. When we put on the new man, we find that we no longer have the same hostilities that we had before. Redeemed Jews no longer can hate Greeks or Gentiles. Now they they get to see them as equals in the gospel before God. No longer are there class distinctions between men and women, slave and free, barbarian and Scythian, for Christ is all and in all. This invariably leads to a complete change in the nature of our relationship with one another. No longer do wives seek to rule over their husbands, but rather they submit to them with the same joy that they would submit to Christ. No longer are husbands bitter toward their wives, but now they love them in the same way that Christ loves his church. Children honor their parents as though they were honoring Christ. Fathers encourage their children in Christ. Slaves work heartily for their masters because their work is really unto Christ. And masters are just to their servants because they know that their own master is Christ. If all the law can be summed up in first love God and second love your neighbor as you love yourself, then Christ is the only way we can possibly fulfill this law. Without the new nature his spirit grants us, it is impossible to love our neighbor or love our maker. However, in Christ, Paul tells us, all things are being reconciled in heaven and on earth, and that he is making peace through the blood of his cross. And so Paul is wrapping up this letter with his final greetings and instructions. 
His, his letter up to this point has been to encourage the Colossian saints, as well as those in Laodicea, to be workers in the kingdom of God. Paul has heard of the tremendous reformation going on in these two places, reformation that is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. He had no hand in the um, church of Colossae, but he wants it to continue. He wants them to continue in this. And so he begins by addressing Tychicus, um, calling him, calling Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus was one of Paul's most trusted letter carriers. He carried the letter to the Colossians, to Philemon, and the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, He's mentioned four other times in relation to Paul's missionary work. And to Paul, Tychicus is at least six things. Tychicus is beloved. He's faithful. He's an equal with Paul and Christ. He's a brother, a minister, and a servant, all under the banner of Christ. Not only this, but Paul recognizes that Tychicus has developed the spiritual gift of encouragement. And so Paul is eager to send him on to this fledgling church so that not only can he listen to how things are going with them, but he can also encourage them in the work. For those working to build Christ's kingdom, Tychicus possesses ideal qualities. He did much work for Paul. And for, and for Christ and his kingdom. And yet very few of us, regularly at least, recognize the tremendously important role he played in the early church. And I want you to recognize that with a man like Tychicus and with all of the, and all of the men and women that Paul greets in his letters, there's a timeless truth in the fact that the kingdom of Christ is made up of living stones, not famous men. It's made up of living stones, not famous men. And yes, there's no possible way not to have famous men and women in the kingdom of Christ. But in eternity, it will be the living stones and not the fame. In eternity, it will be the living stones and not the famous men. So Tychicus was not a famous man, but he was a faithful worker for the kingdom of God. Onesimus is also mentioned in verse 9. He's traveling with Tychicus and he's referred to as a faithful and beloved brother. Uh, And he's considered one of them, as as in one of the people of Colossae, as a Gentile. Uh, It's interesting to note on Reformation Sunday, I need to to quote Calvin somewhere. Um, So I hope it's not heretical to quote Calvin and then disagree with him, but John Calvin thinks it's unlikely that this is the same Onesimus who ran away from Philemon. And his reasoning is this, he says, quote, it can scarcely be believed that this is the slave of Philemon, inasmuch as the name of a thief and fugitive would have been liable to reproach. Close quote. Now, he might, he might be totally right. But recognizing a thief, a former thief and fugitive, as now a faithful and beloved brother, sounds like just the kind of outrageous forgiveness offered by a Messiah who had come to reconcile all things and unite all of his people under his kingship. So whether this is the same Onesimus that ran away from Philemon or not, um, it's, that really is less important than the fact that the gospel makes it entirely possible that it certainly could be the one and the same. A thief and a fugitive can become faithful and beloved in Christ. The next men to be described 
Uh, the next men to be described are Aristarchus, who is a fellow prisoner with Paul, as well as Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the, the Mark we know, uh, and a man with two names, actually, uh, called both Jesus and Justice. And so, so kids, if you're reading along in your Bibles, when you see this name Jesus, um, it's in this verse, it's referring to someone besides Jesus Christ. So these men... Uh, these were the Jews. These were the last remaining remnants of Paul, of Paul's fellow Jews, who he describes as, again, workers for the kingdom of God. Um, all the rest, it seems, uh, at least of the Jews, had abandoned him. Uh, and so the victory in this gospel letter um, comes into even a higher relief when we recognize that not only was Paul languishing in prison um, and yet still expecting total world victory, but he was also abandoned by his fellow kinsmen. He wasn't some trendy political prisoner with a large following of supporters in his own hashtag on social media. He was a forgotten prisoner, which is why at the end of his letter, he exhorts the Colossians to remember his chains. However, Paul understood the biblical pattern that prison invariably leads to reigning in victory. James Jordan has, speaks at length on this, um, and it's, it's fascinating to see this theme play out through the Old, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, take Joseph, for example. Joseph languished in prison prior to being set in command over all of Egypt. Daniel was carted away in captivity only to be set at the right hand of the king twice, even after his time in the lion's den. David, the true and anointed king of Israel, fled to the caves of Adullam, hiding from Saul um, to wait and was then set on the throne and named a man after God's own heart. There are countless more examples of this concept, but of course the ultimate example is that of Christ himself, handed over to the Romans by the Jews as a common criminal and crucified. Jesus was soon after, soon after, set on high as king and ruler over heaven and earth. When you are in captivity, it's a sure sign that a glorious promotion is about to take place. Paul recognizes this. He knows that prison leads to promotion in the kingdom of God. And so this situation that Paul and his fellow workers for the kingdom of God found themselves in has many similarities to us today. None of us, of course, are languishing in prison, but the, uh, the culture that surrounds us is beginning to more and more resemble that. Uh, there's a Christian philosopher by the name of Aaron Wren, uh, and he came up with a compelling way to think about how the changes in Christianity, um, how, they, how they've taken place, and specifically in how Christianity is perceived in America. He, he calls this his three worlds of Christianity, uh, and this is how he describes it. First he, has, he, first, he talks about there being a positive world, and the positive world is everything that happened prior to 1994. Uh, at this point, uh, he says Christianity was viewed positively by society and Christian morality was still normative. That, didn't, that doesn't mean that Christian morality was necessarily followed, but just people at least, list, at least gave it lip service. Um, to be seen as a religious person prior to 1994 um, and to be seen as one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms was a social positive. It was a good thing. Christianity was a status enhancer. In some cases, failure to embrace Christian norms hurt you. 
And then he says we moved into something called the neutral world. And that was a 20-year period after 1994, from 1994 to 2014. And, and in the neutral world, Christianity was then seen as a socially neutral attribute. It no longer had a dominant status in American society, but to be seen as a religious person was not a knock against you either. It was more like pers a personal affection or a hobby. Uh, and while Christian moral norms retained residual force, they were quickly becoming outdated. And then we reach 2014 to the present day. This is what he calls the negative world. In this world, being a Christian is now a social negative, especially in high-status positions. Christianity in many ways is seen by our society as undermining the social good. Christian morality is expressly repudiated. That's the negative world. That's where we find ourselves. Now, you don't have to agree with this model of thinking. You can disagree with it. That's totally fine. But it, it can be a helpful framework in understanding the intense and chaotic changes that have ripped apart society in the past few decades. It has been stark. It's been enough to make your head spin. And I don't know if it was working. He describes him as, this, this is how Paul describes the pastor. He says, quote, Epaphras is, quote, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, close quote. In other words, Epaphras was working by praying. The kingdom was growing through his prayers. He wanted his people to grow and mature and not be tossed to and fro. He wanted them to be assured of the will of God and not waver as they labored to build his kingdom in a hostile world. He wanted them to never fall away from loving and serving King Jesus. Paul assures us that these prayers were a labor of love, but they were a labor. It's important to remember that as we pray, we are actually doing something. Prayer is really the most effective means we have for building the kingdom. And Epaphras worked hard for the people in his church in many ways, but specifically here by diligently praying for them. Moving on to verse 14, Paul sends greetings from Luke, as well as a man named Demas. Now of Luke, we are mostly familiar. You should be. But you might not know that Demas at this point, when the letter was written, <coughs> was faithfully laboring alongside Paul. Clearly, he says, hey, Luke and Demas say hello. <clears throat> However, later, Demas would desert Paul. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10 that, quote, uh, that Demas, quote, his love of the present world would cause him to desert Paul. And so this is the exact kind of disaster that Epaphras was praying against apostasy. He was praying that apostasy would not creep in. Now, as Reformed Christians on Reformation Sunday, I don't mind saying that we believe in what is called the perseverance of the saints. This is the good news that Christ has truly saved every soul that makes up his bride, and that once saved, you will never be lost. This is absolutely true in every way. However, it's critical that such a glorious truth lead us to action and not apathy. Demas, at the time of this letter, certainly thought of himself 
as a Christian, and yet we know that he deserted Paul and the faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Did he lose his salvation? Well, no, certainly not. There was nothing we do to earn our salvation in the first place, and so it's not ours to lose in that sense. He didn't lose his salvation. He never truly had it, and yet he truly lost something. While his desertion proved that he was not one of the elect, we also know from Paul's letter that he was a very real part of the workers of the kingdom of God. He really was something. He was there. I believe the author of Hebrews is speaking of people like Demas when he says in chapter 6, verse 4, quote, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the world of God, of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Demas was baptized, and he was truly grafted into Christ in a meaningful way, and yet he was pruned and cast aside due to his unbelief. And this is not true of only individuals, but of entire nations. Uh, I have a, a long passage I'd like to read, so if you turn in your Bibles, if you've got them, to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read about 14 verses, and so if you've got your Bibles, um, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, highlights more the fact that you can be somehow connected to Christ in a non-fully elect way, and you can be cut off from that. There is a real sense in which we must guard against apostasy. So in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, starting with verse 1, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, pause there for just a second. These were people who were feasting on Christ. They were baptized into Christ. They were being fed by Christ. They were connected in a meaningful way to Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, Paul says this, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, Paul goes on to say, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, look at these guys. Look what happened to them. Take heed. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No, and then he says this. He gives us a promise. So don't miss this promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's nothing unique or special about your temptation. 
It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Finally, Paul says, therefore, all of this is so you can say, so he can say to you, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul couldn't be more clear. There is no room in the kingdom for Christians who are unwilling to submit to the rule of the king of the kingdom. So we've got this kingdom. It's got a king. And if you want in the kingdom, you've got to submit to the rule of the king. If you are unrepentant in your sexual morality, then God is not pleased. If you are ungrateful and given to grumbling, then God is not pleased. If you are an idolater and given to worship anything but God, then God is not pleased. Paul is warning us. If you think you stand, give heed lest you fall. Every temptation that comes your way, you can overcome. And for those truly found in Christ, you will. For, you, for those truly found in Christ, you will. You, we, we must guard and care for our salvation, not because we've somehow earned it and must keep it, but rather that it is a precious gift that has been given to us, and our actions show the reality of our soul. If we truly have been given this gift of salvation, then we will bear fruit, just as the gospel is bearing fruit, and we will persevere in this fruit. This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, he says of Christ, he he sets up, again, the kingship of Christ. Paul never tires of of hammering the point home. Christ is king. He says, therefore, in, in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's telling us that Christ is king overall. He tells us that all throughout the New Testament, his kingdom has no end. And then listen to what he says. Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So Christ is king. We're building his kingdom. And when we build his kingdom, we must take um, care and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Demas did not take this seriously because his heart was not actually changed. He was not careful to work out his salvation with fear and trembling because he was not given a new heart capable of doing this, even though he aped it for a while. And while he was never truly one of God's elect, the loss Demas experienced was real, it was tragic, and it was catastrophic. So, beloved, on this Reformation Sunday, rest knowing that it is Christ who has saved you. You didn't earn it, you're not earning it, and you won't earn it in the future. But the entirely sufficient work of Christ in your life should free you to heartily give yourself unto good works, unto fruit, bearing fruit. You have been saved unto good works, not by your good works. Moving on to the end says after uh, uh, moving on to verse 15 through 17 uh, after saying hello from Demas a future apostate Paul says to say hi to the saints in Laodicea Paul has no way of knowing this at the time but these saints in Laodicea would also soon be put through a fiery tribulation a temptation 
And Christ would find, um, would be fine in the midst of this, that their devotion to him was pathetic. We know this because in Revelation, we hear about this church. Uh, this church seemed to be filled with Christians who were not working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They were not busy building the kingdom, but were rather deluding themselves with visions of grandeur, um, delusions of grandeur for themselves um, and not for the uh, for Christ's kingdom. Their vision was on themselves, not on building up Christ's kingdom. However, they started out, uh, whatever state they were in when the gospel, when the letter to the Colossians was read to them, they've ended up in Revelation as lukewarm Christians. And Christ finds them revolting. He says to them, he says, quote, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love. I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If Anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him. And dine with him and he with me. That's one of the most um, mis, uh, misused passages in the whole Bible. People, people use that as an evangelistic tool. But it's not an evangelistic tool. It's Christ talking to Christians who are lukewarm saying, stop it. Stop doing that. I'm knocking at, your do- I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Let me in and I'll dine with you. You're one of my people anyway. Stop being lukewarm. So these Laodicean Christians still have hope. There's still hope. They haven't been cast out. But they are being sternly warned not to delude themselves any longer. There are also other workers mentioned here, uh, uh, Nymphas, Nymphas and uh, Archippus, and Paul says hello to them and um, to them all and encourages them to continue in the faith. All of these people were fellow workers in the kingdom of God, and Paul finishes his exhortation by reminding them that he is in literal chains for the gospel. There is no hypocrisy in Paul. G.K. Chesterton once said that um, any time someone would say they didn't come to church because the church was full of hypocrites, he says, oh, no, there's room for a lot more. (laughs) So there's no hypocrisy in this case in Paul because everything he's calling his listeners to, he's willing to do himself and more. He is willing to suffer and die for the glory of Christendom, and he wants his listeners to be just as ready. This is a stark contrast to when he was lived his life as a uh, Pharisee. Uh, Jesus says that the Pharisees bound up burdens on their followers and wouldn't even lift a pinky to help them. Paul is the exact opposite of that now. He's, at, he's the tip of the spear when it come, comes to suffering for Christ, and he wants us to follow in his footsteps. So as we close this passage and this chapter in this book and this era, it's a lot of closing right now, I want us to remember that the advancement of the kingdom of Christ is inevitable. It's happening. It's happening. It's been happening. Uh, as image bearers of the king of this realm, we need to be praying for eyes to see this glorious future. We need to be praying for a mind that is willing to work toward it and asking the Lord to bless us with a heart that harmonizes the work and the vision with thanksgiving and doxology. Along this whole journey, everything we do from now until we kick the bucket and go to be with Jesus in glory, we need to be doing it with a vision, with a mind to work, and with a heart full of thanksgiving. Colossae belongs to Christ. 
And so does Lewis County. Even though we find ourselves working for this kingdom in a possibly what we could call a negative world that is openly hostile to Christ and his truth, we have an advantage. It's a distinct advantage, and it is a crucial advantage. We know that our work for the kingdom is not futile. Futile. While the world busies itself laboring to increase riches, power, and fame, we will work a different way. We will worship God. We will pray for, serve, and love one another. We will plant churches, establish schools. One day we will build hospitals. We will care for widows and orphans. We will win people to Christ. We will establish and run God-glorifying businesses. And we will work out ourselves. Uh, we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling, always being mindful to keep ourselves unstained from the world. That is how we work, and it will always pay off. Throughout all of this, the promise of Ephesians 3:20 is always needs to be overshadowing everything we do. The promise of Ephesians 3:20 that Christ will always be able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us so that to him will be given glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.